From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and uh, sporting my new Rasputin look tonight um, for this new programme, since we're pronouncing things differently. Just remember, next week we are going to air part one of three, maybe four, just depends, of McKenna Denson, who was allegedly raped by Bishop uh, Joe, Joseph Bishop when she was a missionary in the um, LDS Mission Training Center in Provo, Utah, uh, and he was the Mission Training Center's president. Uh, folks, this is going to be a fascinating verbal adventure into freakishly insidious tale of religious chicanery and uh, uh, clandestine managerialism from the faith and just plain fugly old politics from a good old boy system all met face to face by a feisty female uh, phenomenal person of fortitude. I mean, she goes at it. And so I'm telling you, tune in uh, next Tuesday night because we'll air part one. Now, having said that, um, next Tuesday morning here in the campus church studios, we're going to be pre-taping that interview. And we've opened that up for people who want to come watch live. And I guess there have been, we've had a, uh, a several requests and there's been a number of other people locally who are interested. We're in Murray, Utah, 137 West, 4640 South. We're in an industrial area right down from Aspen countertops. And uh, so if you want to be here by like 945, we're going to start taping at 10 and we'll go for two or three or four hours. It just depends. So we welcome you. That is next Tuesday, 10 a.m., September 25th. You can go to www.campuschurch.tv to get directions and a repeat of the address, etc. And now before we go to the next point, let's take a look at this spot. Okay, elders, we are continuing our review of gospel topic essays found on LDS.org. This one is addressing the idea of a mother in heaven. This teaching is very unique to Mormonism. So, Elder, let's pick up where we left off in the essay. We left off here. While there is no record of a formal revelation to Joseph Smith on this doctrine, some early Latter-day Saint women recall that he personally taught them about a mother in heaven. The earliest published reference to this doctrine appears shortly after Joseph Smith's death in 1844 in documents written by close associates. The most notable expressions of the idea is found in a poem by Eliza R. Snow, now known as the hymn, O My Father. This text declares, In the heavens are parents single? No, the thought makes reason stare. Truth is reason, truth eternal. Tells me I have a mother there. The doctrine of a mother in heaven is not a minor belief. If anyone should have been aware of this teaching enough to have it included in LDS scripture, Joseph Smith would certainly seem to be the man. But the hymn, Oh My Father, didn't come out until after Smith was dead. It's interesting that the Heavenly Mother teaching is rarely mentioned today by any LDS leaders or in any church manuals. It's as if she's cut off from her children. We will find out in our next discussion that prayers from her spirit children will never be directed to her. In essence, she is not allowed to have any contact with her spiritual offspring, and they will not be encouraged by your church leaders to have a relationship with her. You know, if I wasn't a heterosexual married male, I might find myself strangely attracted to that one elder. <laughs> Check out Talking to Mormons. It's uh, really informative stuff, and uh, you can see how to get to it there on the screen. Well, of course, most of you know that Bishop Sam Young has been excommunicated by the LDS Church. The reason, I'm guessing, I, I've heard the reasons are there, uh, but I'm guessing it's because he criticized LDS leadership and openly uh, didn't hearken to their counsel to shut his mouth. Uh, what was he doing? He was campaigning for a policy change within the LDS regime. The big irony that's been pointed out on social media by many people involved is that where guys like uh, Joseph Bishop uh, the alleged rapist of McKenna Denson and Christy Johnson's dad, who we've had on the show, are members in good standing um, 
in the religion because they are part of the good old boy system. Uh, a guy like Sam Young uh, has been kicked out simply for trying to protect uh, LDS children in the uh, interview process that is in place in Mormonism today. So it really illustrates the insidious uh, top-down ways of the LDS, and it's going to be interesting to watch how things unfold as the years go by. But I wish every organized religion uh, had the heat put on it that Mormonism has had put on it of late. I'm not saying Mormonism doesn't deserve it. They do. I rejoice in the fact that the can has been popped open and the worms are getting exposed and they're under this heat because people are going to stop converting so readily and quickly to their tails and then they're going to cease to be put under bondage and it's a good thing so it's good but i just wish that everything that is done in the dark from the biggest religious corporations on down to the small one churches that manipulate people i wish it could all be exposed in the same way unfortunately we're not living in such a world today folks and a world of true transparency uh, doesn't exist we're kind of pushing for it more and more in many ways and so men in power, mostly men in power, continue to puppeteer things from behind the scenes. And all the while they're preying on other people, especially uh, women and children and people who are not capable of defending themselves. Uh, I personally hate manipulation. I, I despise controlling people and governments. I despise controlling governments, uh, religions, clubs. I despise controlling parents. Uh, any person or entity that use, uh, uses force or manipulation to get their way. Uh, I really hate it. But having said that, I have a word of caution uh, where the controlling, manipulative, threatening ways of many institutions are really easily identified, especially once they've been exposed to the light by people like Sam and, and others. There's a growing trend afoot where groups of people, they're like roving bands of of uh, controlling people are really hard at work at doing the same team, same thing to people they view as a threat. And they use the same force, they use similar threats and manipulations to get their way. And in my opinion, these types are just as evil as the institutions that operate in the same manner. I'm talking about people or groups of people who want to try to control opinion, who want to try to control speech, who want to control the words, the very words, definitions, actions, attitudes of people. I mean, what's the difference between the Mormon church and their puppeteering of members through restricting information and controlling the language of what they want done and said from the pulpit and a group of people who attack another person who voices an unpopular opinion? They simply voice an unpopular opinion and they get castrated in, uh, or, uh, in the public view. So manipulation's manipulation, no matter who's behind it. And freedom of speech ought to be freedom of speech, one, one way or another. And so I sense that many folks who are pointing their fingers so strongly at Mormonism for their controlling ways and uh, are guilty of the very same thing when anyone opposes them on any idea or opinion or topic that's out there. And I am getting more exposed to this simply because I joined the ranks of people on social media. And I've been exposed to it for a couple months now, and I see it. It's unbelievable what people have allowed. I'm glad I didn't get involved in it earlier. I would have spent too much time trying to resist it which is almost futile, but in a similar vein, I have and will continue to rant hard against emotionalism. There's emotionalism behind a lot of the things that are going on today, and we're buying into it like a fish, like a fish, like a fish biting on bait. I mean, we bite into emotionalism, we jump onto the bandwagon, we fervently are going after things because it just feels so right, and we're just being manipulated with emotionalism, like the Mormons manipulate their people with emotionalism, like the evangelicals at their Christian rock concerts manipulate people with their emotionalism. The Mormons have in their videos the oboe music coming right at the right time when the light from heaven starts showing. Oh, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. It must be true, you know. And the Christian rock concerts just at the right time through the fog, right at the moment of the highest music with the best sounds comes the singer looking like Jesus and the collection plate comes around. It's all manipulation using emotions to whip up the masses and... 
But how are those things, which are so apparently manipulative, as manipulative as, um, as the Third Reich's use of music and speech to manipulate the message? And I hate when we appeal to that, but it's such a glaring example. How is it any different than a bunch of people street protesting like a bunch of mindless idiots through emotion? How is it any different than those idiots outside of a general conference who are protesting, screaming in megaphones, the Mormon church? That's all emotionalism. All it does is appeal to our, our basal need to belong to a group and to express our emotions so we can feel something and feel like we're accomplishing something. Uh, emotional appeals are emotional appeals, and they are just as uh, manipulative as all manipulations. I just say this because I think we really need to be smart folks and not full, fall to the pull of every mass movement just because it touches our heartstrings. You know, it's like those commercials where there are a 501c3 and the guy's in Africa and he's saying, please just support us. And they put the child who's emaciated with the flies all over their mouth. And it's emotionalism knowing that 92% of the money that you send into them goes to that guy's pocket and 8% goes perhaps to some mush that the kid will get in the end. I hate to sound so cynical, but that's what it is. If you sit and watch and look at the statistics, you want to read a fantastic book on the subject that will change your life about mass movements, read Eric Hoffer's The True Believer. I've read it five times probably in my life. It's acerbic, it's caustic, it's downright aphoristic in the way he delivers it. He's an atheist, he's hardened, smart as hell, and he can tell you exactly the uh, mindset behind mass movements, whether it's a mass religious movement or it's a movement out on the street. You gotta be smarter than the masses. Otherwise, you're stepping into a, a Mi Lai experience that we've had in Vietnam where it just becomes hysteria. When I, the, our hometown that we came from, Huntington Beach, California, I've told this story before. At the, at the U.S. Open, which is now the OP Pro or vice versa, thousands of people there. What happened? A girl gets up and takes off her top. That's what happened. A girl got up and took off her top. That's called emotionalism in the extreme. You know what came from after that? A riot where that part of the city was literally destroyed by maniacs who let their emotions run amok because they saw a, a naked girl from the waist up. That's what we're talking about. And when you let it in the smallest way move you to act, you're not using the things between your brain. You're using the things, other things in your life. So. Let's have a little fun tonight, shall we? And uh, let's address things people think are Christian but are not. Remembering that Christianity, uh, in my estimation, and this is my view, Christianity is believing that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life, that that son, Jesus, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was put to death for the sin of the world and rose again on the third day and that those who look to him uh, in faith are saved by God's grace. That is Christianity. Remember, that is what it is, right? This kind of plays into last week. Well, I'm going to work through a series of 12, 12 things that are not Christian. You may disagree. I think I'm right. That's why I share it. But, and I could be wrong, but you just think about it. Ready? Number one. <laughs> A Christian does not need to accept the Genesis account literally. Uh, a Christian does not need to receive any story in the Bible figuratively or literally, historical or mythical. Uh, the, they can view some or all of the stories as actual and literal. They can choose not to. The choice is between them and God. There's nothing in Scripture that says we Christians need to be literal or figurative in our understanding of Genesis all the way to Revelation. All right? No matter how ardent other people will demand that a Christian must interpret the Bible literally and or figuratively, that is not the case. This includes a six-day creation. 
literal or not. This includes the 24-hour period debates. This includes a worldwide flood or not. This includes a literal exodus or not, a literal parting of the sea or not. All of those things. Do I believe personally in the Old Testament and the New Testament literally? Some things yes, some things no. That's how I see it. But how I see it's irrelevant to you. It's between you, your intelligence, the spirit, you reading the scripture, and God. But it does not make you a Christian or a non-Christian. Number two. We have a lot of Germans in the audience tonight. A Christian does not need to be pro-Israel. Okay? Uh, they can be pro-Israel. They may not be pro-Israel. But no matter how it's spun, Christianity has nothing to do with your political support of Israel today. Nothing to do with it. Uh, I would suggest that a Christian would certainly resist hating Israel or people who are Israelis or Jews or Palestinians or whatever you want to say, just as they should resist hating Islamabad or Indonesia or any other country. Hate is anathematic to the Christian faith. So, uh, but the idea that a Christian must be pro-Israel is a misappropriation, again, of biblical content and winds up being very political, very now, you can be pro-Israel, or you can be non-pro-Israel, but that is not what makes you a Christian. I happen to possess a personal adoration for the nation of Israel. I love the, the nation and the people by reading the, the scripture. I have a great affinity for them, but I have zero affinity for the modern state of Israel. I can care less about them more than I can care less about China or the U.S. or Catalina Island. Uh, the, all nations are under God's hand, so I don't particularly look at them today in a modern sense and hold them up. Christians have this freedom. As long as within the faith we're saying you must be or you must not be, it is problematic. So let's bro open up and let's reduce the rhetoric either direction. Numero tres. A Christian can be of any political party on the face of this freaking earth or non-political party. In Christ, a Christian will receive people of all different political parties. Everyone a Christian can be or can associate with and love uh, a socialist or a Marxist or a communist or a totalitarian, a conservative, a liberal, you name it. In the United States, we have errantly allowed the loudest evangelicals to make it seem like Jesus is a member of the GOP. That is not true. We do not worship an American Jesus. We worship a God and King and Savior of the world. Okay? Number four. A Christian can eat at Carl's Jr. Even though Carl's Jr. had an ad where a nearly nude Paris Hilton was washing her car about a decade ago. A Christian can choose to go to Hobby Lobby or not and say, I don't like Hobby Lobby. They can eat at Chick-fil-A or not. They can go to In-N-Out Burger or not. Just because these companies are Christian or run by Christians does not make them any more favorable. It's okay for a Christian to say, I hate the product at such and such place, even though it's run by a Christian. Christians can go to Vegas. They can work in the casinos in, uh, at Mardi Gras. They can go to Carnival. They can watch R-rated movies. Christians can do all of those things. Christians can watch porn. They can watch porn. Now, is it advisable? I don't think so. I would talk to a Christian and say, yeah, I think it's probably going to hurt you uh, for, for a number of countless reasons. The same way, you know, using heroin will hurt you. But this does not in any way make me question your Christianity. Why? Because you're a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian whether you have looked at porn or not. I don't care what these freaks try to say. They want to make it all about the other stuff, and they remove it about what Christianity is. It is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he so believes on him. He didn't add a parenthetical reference and doesn't watch porn, smoke pot, vote uh, communist, or blah, 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 blah. He doesn't say that stuff. It's the idiot zealots out there on one side or the other who have made this faith something that it's not. Got it? 
So a Christian can choose simultaneously to avoid porn, to avoid alcohol, to avoid pot, to avoid R-rated movies, to avoid Vegas. They can choose that. And another Christian can say, I have the liberty to do what I want. Both are my brother and sister. Both will be treated with equally with love. Both are parts of the body of Christ because it is God who decides who are his and who are not. Not us. We think it's us. It's God. And along the way, our job is to, you know the word, it's a four-letter word. No, it's not that one. It's to love. Number five. That being said, a Christian can eat, drink, and use any substance they want or desire. It's between them and God. They can eat any foods that have been forbidden in the Bible. They can smoke hookah. They can smoke heroin. They can smoke pot, tobacco. They can use drugs, legal and illegal. They can snort. They can drink as much alcohol as they choose. Any brand, any flavor, any amount. A Christian can do whatever they allow themselves to do because it's between them and God. It is not between you and them. That's where we've made our mistake. That's where we've made our mistake. As a pastor teacher, if asked, I would emphasize that there's joy in being free from certain things and that if someone has a predilection toward alcoholism or substance abuse, it's wise to stay away from such things. I stay away from certain things because they destroy me if I take them. It's just wisdom. But these things have nothing to do whether I put my faith in Christ or not. Okay? So uh, you'll never hear me ever, I don't think, tell me that the Holy Spirit can't be with somebody and that they're not a Christian because of a choice that they make in their physical life. That is between, of course, them and God. While we're on the subject, number six, the mark of man. A Christian is not saved to the kingdom of God because of their righteousness, um, their works, their anything else about themselves except their faith and love. A Christian is not made more lovable to God through personal cleanliness, and I mean moral cleanliness. God doesn't love them more. A Christian does not need to experience water baptism. They don't need to speak in tongues. They don't need to give money to anybody on earth in Jesus' name. That's up to them and God. If they don't want to, they don't. They don't need to attend any religious service on the face of the earth. A Christian doesn't have to read the Bible. They don't ever have to open the book up. They may not have had one. If we look at history, the majority of, in, of Christians in history haven't even had one. They don't have to do it. All they are as a Christian is someone who's placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes a Christian. You fools online, you, you promoters of zealotry and, and personal righteousness, you finger pointers, that people, while you've got a beam sticking out both eyes and both ears and both nostrils and out your belly buttons. In the same vein, a person who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ may or may not possess all manner of issues in their lives. They may have been divorced ten times. They, they may have been an adulterer and are an adulteress. They may be a pedophile. They may have been a, a, a rapist. They could be a homosexual, practicing homosexual. They could be a practicing anything and be a Christian. You see, we're talking about what makes a person a Christian. It is their faith. Now, are we talking about maturity in the faith? No, we're talking about what makes a Christian, okay? And then we're talking about once they have God in them by faith, which is how it comes, he works with them on the things in their life. That's how it works. We don't work with them on the things in their life. That's called religion, now, not relationship. So they can be a tax evader. They can be any of that. And they can be someone who thinks that their righteousness is getting them to heaven. 
And I don't think it's my job to say, you better back down. Your righteousness isn't getting you to heaven. You better slop up your life a bit, buddy. You wouldn't hear that either. It's all predicated on the individual and their walk. Do you get it? People have taken this fact and they either use it initially to describe a Christian just in the start. Yes, you were saved by faith. You were a Christian then. But now you're a Christian under a different set of rules. No. Now, if you want to talk about what makes a Christian a son or a daughter of God, that's a separate topic. That's not what we're talking about here. And if you want to have that conversation, that's another show, a completely different show. And that one is the one that is really difficult to hear. That's the one that clears churches out when you start sharing that message. Because there is strong 85% contextual scriptural support of what makes someone a son or daughter of God. But what makes them a saved Christian? That is just simply what we've been talking about. Number seven, the perfect number seven. Christianity, you've heard it, it's a cliche, but I gotta say it is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's what it is, your relationship. And as a result, it wasn't founded upon you being righteous to have the relationship. It was founded on your faith. And in that faith, you get this relationship where God actually moves into you. He doesn't move out because you're a failure, because he didn't move in because you were not one. He moved in because of your faith and he stays with you, irrespective. Can you, can you insult the Holy Spirit? Apparently. But it doesn't mean he moves out. It just means you grieve over your sin and the Lord leads you back to where he wants. This is all biblical stuff. I would venture to say that the past 2,000 years, there has been Christians in every single religious expression on earth. Every single one. I think there is today. So it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. Yeah, some denominations make it really difficult to be a Christian if you follow what they say. But it doesn't mean people aren't in those denominations uh, who are Christians today. They are. Number eight, Christians can be wealthy. Christians can be middle income. Christians can be poor. They can live lavishly. They can live in abject poverty. They can have every occupation and walk of life. Blackjack dealers or, or multinational conglomerate presidents or some broke as a church mouse. God is in charge of all that. People spend their money and live their ways based on them and their own subjective decisions and it's not our place to judge number nine nine not all christians listen or like christian music no they do not some really love the lord and hate the stuff uh not all christians like what are called christian movies some of them find them horribly made with terrible scripts and some christians will never visit the Noah, noah's ark theme park or Heritage Park, or the Holy Land experience on their family's summer vacation, uh, 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 or subscribe to Christianity Today, or support um, Focus on the Family. Not all Christians are about that stuff. None of these things are connected to the fact that a human being has elected to receive Jesus by faith. None of it. And it's not evidence that you have either. Chiz, if this cultural stuff has got to stop. Number 10, Christian families and parents do not have to send their kids to private Christian schools or to universities or to colleges to be considered Christian. Many of them can't afford it and they wind up sending their kids to public schools. And I'm gonna say it right here, it's gonna hurt some of you. I don't mean it to hurt you, but in my past 20 years of engaging with Christian families and Christian kids and Christian people, I have seen my share, a large share of kids who went to Christian schools, pre-K to high school, graduated and walked from God altogether. They come out often worse from having experienced that side of American evangelicalism than if they had gone to a public school and learned the hard knocks of sin and difficulty in this life all by themselves. Be really careful if you think Christian schools uh, are always going to have a positive impact upon your children. That is not the case in my experience. Our own daughter, uh, we thought it was great she was going to go to a Christian university, four-year university in Southern California, and uh, she came out of that place so tweaked and so confused 
and almost it's almost a miracle she understands God today. They messed with her mind so badly with uh, righteousness in that school, and she couldn't figure it out until after many years. This faith is not meant, here's the key, to be institutionalized by men. It is not meant to be taken and institutionalized and then readministered out to the people who are part of the institution. That's the problem with the church. It's the problem with colleges and, and Christian schools. Because in Jesus' name, the, my daughter's being told they need to win this volleyball game for Jesus, to go in and give it their all for Jesus while they play another Christian school in their league who's also playing for Jesus. You walk out of something like that and you're like, oh. <laughs> Number 11, Christianity has nothing to do with not judging things. Christianity has nothing to do with not judging things. Now, that's a double negative on purpose. Christians must judge and assess all things in life as a means to make proper choices. I mean, come on. The fear of hearing you're judging has just become ubiquitous, at least in this country. You're judging. Yes, I'm judging. You have to judge. You have to weigh a matter out. You have to assess a situation. You have to judge everything. You test all things, which includes judgments, and you investigate. Any Christian who doesn't judge everything is a fool. What Christians are not supposed to do is condemn in that judgment. Big difference, you see. Christianity has never been about failing to assess matters around you. But those who assess in Christianity should never make the mistake of having assessed, say, you're going to hell, you're going to burn in the lake of fire, you're not saved, you're not a Christian, I condemn you, I can't hang out with you. You see the difference? So set a child murderer in front of me who's raped and killed a dozen children. Um, I will never condemn them. I will never condemn them, even if it's in my own family. And I know those are very, very easy words to say, but I have thought about it and played it out in my mind. I would never say, you are going to burn in hell and God is going to get you. Never. But I would never leave my kids with them. That's the difference. Now, if you don't leave your kids with them and they say, you're judging, you say, you're right. Yes, of course I am. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean I'm condemning you with my mouth or my mind. It just means I'm assessing a situation. So as Christians, if people say to you, you're judging, say, of course I'm judging. Well, Jesus said, don't judge. Do you understand what he meant that from the Greek, krino, and condemnation? I can give you uh, seven scriptures that will tell you that you're supposed to judge things. We just don't condemn. And finally, number 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Christianity, if it can be said to be anything, um, would be love. That's what Christianity is in the end. And which is defined by the Spirit and its fruit. And uh, in other words, Christianity is the type of love that's patient and kind and long-suffering and is the, the opposite of what we are in our flesh, especially me. That's Christianity, folks. It's possessed by all people who are truly Christian. That's what Christianity is. It's faith in Jesus, and then it is growing in the capacity to love. As Jesus loved, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to love, as Ephesians tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, love. And we will be seen and known as Christians by that love. It shouldn't be we should be known to be a Christian by any of the things I just talked about. Those things are not Christianity. So if you find your identity wrapped up in those things, you have misinterpreted what it means to be a Christian. Because the scripture is clear, what it means to be a Christian is someone who has faith in Jesus and someone who then tries to love as he loves, which is selflessly. And that brings me to a final point. We are at 
a few minutes left. Let me cover this. I know these shows in between the interviews are a lot of rambling by me, but that's what you get. If you know this about me, I apologize for the repetition, and, but, and, and I don't mean to lift myself up because I have been blessed to be able to do this, but I have been a seeker of truth almost without hesitation most of my adult life. My teen years, I was a seeker, but not for truth. And I have had the opportunity given to me by God to essentially, for full time since 2009, uh, really be able to focus on searching for truth. Every morning, early in the morning, till the early afternoon, and then afterward, I can really spend a lot of time in searching for truth. And, and then uh, where most people might be able to seek for truth in the morning, then they go to their job, and then they come home at night, and they do some before they go to bed. I've been able to spend every day of every week primarily doing this. And it doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else, but I've put the homework in, and I apologize for this re repetition. So it also means I've been able to go after a number of things that I have not found to be 100% true that have been taught to me as a believer. And I've turned down a number of positions that I once held as true, as you know, and turned to several others uh, that hold much more living water than the former position. Understand my searches since 2006 or so have not been through the wisdom of men. I put away all my secular books when I became a Christian. And in 2006, my searches have been focused on the word, not books about the word either. They, I've read a couple books along the way, but it's been in the Word. That's where I have sought to establish the truth. With the Holy Spirit, I pray, as my guide. And after all these years, I've come to stand firmly on a few things. I don't think these things will change. They could, but I don't think they will. Firstly, I stand firmly on what Jesus said, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I believe that principle is really important, okay? A couple of days ago, an attorney friend of mine who had left Mormonism, become a Christian, came into where I was working, and uh, he's on fire, man. This guy, and he reads his Bible, and like a good lawyer, like, like uh, Calvin was, but he's not a Calvinist, he systematized the Bible to his advantage, to his worldview, and he had it set. But he has yet to get to the heart of the matter of things. He still thinks that it can be systematized within that book to be a kind of lockstep rule system of how to be a member of faith. And uh, he, he's, so, he's sort of like, if you've seen The Matrix, he's sort of like Neo who goes into The Matrix, but he doesn't have the skills yet on how to really operate within The Matrix. He's still trying to use his, his former skills of logic and reason and all that to operate. And, and so he's going to get beat up in the matrix, right? And, and that's what's happened with my attorney friend. He, he has learned the scripture, but he's still using the former way. He hasn't gotten to the point at the end of Matrix 1 where he's just able to... He's not even thinking. It just happens because he's still clinging to those former tools. Sorry for those of you who haven't seen the movie. And it's kind of how it is with all of us. If we're operating on non-eternal truths, um, we'll find our ability to truly be free encumbered because you haven't come to the truth. You'll be, you'll be um, handicapped, so to speak, in your ability to really function freely because you don't have the complete truth. And it's the truth that sets you free. What's the ultimate destination of freedom that consummate, truth can take us to? What's that ultimate destination that we're looking for to be completely liberated from when you know the truth? Well, unadulterated, unlimited, unhindered ability to love as God loves. That's the destination that you will seek, that we're seeking for when we adhere to the truth. It's the ability to have the freedom to love as God loves. And when we embrace things that are less than true, our ability to love as God loves is hindered. We're still handicapped because we haven't learned the truth of a matter. And what it has done, it's hindered our ability to love as he does. So the truth setting us free has an objective. It's setting us free to love as God loves. 
And the more error you uh, uh, embrace, the less love you're going to be able to express because you're not free. The more truth you embrace, the more love you're going to be able to express because you've been set free in the truth. You get it? So, if you or I maintain an opinion or a doctrine or a belief or practice that does not lend to true godly love, that truth should be examined. Let me repeat that. If you are adhering to something that doesn't allow you to love as God loves, and that love is defined in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and other places, how God loves. If you can't love in that way, then the truth that you call the truth is hurting you somehow. It's stopping you in your ability to be free, to love. Now think about that. Since love for God and man is the end of the law, anything that lends to such love must be considered of him, of God, and anything that moves our hearts and minds and mouths and hands from selfless love to selfish love is a form of error and therefore is not of God. It's a, it's a litmus test that you can always use to see what are my beliefs in Christ doing for me? Are my beliefs and doctrines and opinions that I've embraced helping me to love others better or are they hurting me in how love is defined in the New Testament? How Christ loved, which was selfless love. As a result of its presence, which is non-truth, Christians have become less loving. Again, proving that there is something inferior with the stance to begin with. What is the teaching or stance? You've heard it from me, but I want to address something that I see. You've heard it before many times, but I've got to reiterate it tonight. As hindering so many Christians from being free to truly love. Okay? It's that Jesus is coming back to take his bride up from this earth in the future. Clinging to that, which I am going to call an untruth, uh, has led more people to the prison that leads to non-love than almost anything else that Christians are gripping now. And so, if Jesus has not already come back and taken his bride, if he hasn't, and the people who believe he's coming in the future is going to, then the New Testament apostolic directives, meaning Paul's epistles to the church, are still completely applicable. Now, I don't know if you realize what that means, but it means you better find a church that lives the New Testament as it is described by Paul, because that is the church Paul said Jesus was coming back to take. And if you aren't living that church, you're in serious trouble according to what the epistles and to what Revelation says. Even Jesus to the seven churches said, listen, I love this about you, I love that. But if you don't start doing this, I will leave you in the dust when I come to take you. It's serious business. If Jesus hasn't come back and taken his church, then this world better find a religion or a system or a group or a people who are living it as the New Testament completely describes, right? I mean, all the New Testament policies, practices, doctrines, and teachings must be in place because people say they were the apostles. We're supposed to follow them, so you better do it. If this is the case, let me tell you something which is clear in the book of Revelation. The bride of Christ has to be pure. There's 144,000 of them that haven't defiled themselves with women, it says. I mean, we are talking about people who follow the apostles to the T in the New Testament if Jesus is coming back to take his church. If this is the case, then the gates of hell have not in any way prevailed against the Holy Church for the past 2,000 years. In other words, somewhere over the past 2,000 years, the true church has been on earth 
and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it in any way. Now, orthodoxy claims it's them, Russian or Greek, or uh, any of the other orthodoxies, and the Catholics claim it's them, and the Mormons say they've restored it, and the, and the, uh, the Reformationists and the Restorationists all claim to have it, but all of them have been corrupted by the gates of hell. There's not a single instance where the church has not been defiled. Just look at the iconography of orthodoxy and look at their rituals for Mariology, etc. It's a joke. Completely non-biblical, a joke. If we're waiting on him to come, then every single person who has not received him by faith since he left has gone to hell. You got to understand that. They are in hell. And they are waiting to get out when he comes sometime in the future in order to be removed from that horrible place, judged at the great white throne, and thrown into the lake of fire that was created for Satan and his angels. We are waiting for the mass of people who have been born on this earth between 70, uh, whatever, John died, 90 AD, and today have gone to hell. They're in hell, and we are waiting for the judgment. And the Christians who have died in faith have gone to the paradise part of prison. And they're waiting for Jesus to return so that they can go before the great white judge and see if they are going to make it into heaven. That's all this what we're waiting for, you see. Doesn't make sense chronologically. Since Jesus hasn't returned, listen. As he promised he would return, as apostles said he would return, then Satan is still roaming about and beating the crap out of Jesus and his victory. He is stealing souls right and left and putting them in hell and then going to have them put in the lake of fire because he is still in control, the way Christians say. That's bull. That is the biggest bunch of bull I've ever heard in my life. He either had the victory as our Lord and Savior, and Satan's been put in his right place. Yes, we're still evil. Yes, there's darkness. But all of that is done. All of it's done, and he's had the victory. Or Satan's still winning. And so I don't see, if, if we're still in this age, I see so many failures by reading and studying the New Testament. I don't know how on earth Jesus is going to come back and take 10 people to be part of his bride. It's become so corrupt. And if this is the case, and Jesus hasn't had the victory over Satan, then he hasn't had the victory over sin. He hasn't had the victory over death. He hasn't had the victory over hell. And believers today must do a number of things prescribed in Paul's epistles. One, they must be worthy to be taken and saved by Jesus according to the New Testament. All of them. They must be doing church like the New Testament apostles directed. They must operate in the order that the apostles established. All the gifts of the Spirit should be present and manifesting themselves in the church today. Every one of them. Christians by faith should be raising people from the dead. We should really have apostles with us, living apostles who are witnesses of Christ's resurrection, still in operation and governing the church. That is definitely a New Testament uh, mandate. They were the ones who kept the church together then. They should still be keeping it together now. And I'm not talking about some of those phony SOBs up on North Temple. I'm talking about real ones who are being martyred for their faith. Do we see that today? No. But you want to live in a New Testament church? Where are they? We should be casting out devils from everybody who looks to be possessed. All the people homeless downtown, we should be exercising devils out of them and giving them their freedom. Women should shut the hell up in church. They should not be voicing their opinion, speaking. Widows should pass seven tests to make sure they're widows for sure. That women should not be wearing uh, elaborate uh, ornament to church. They should be braiding their freaking hair. They should be covering their freaking heads. I mean, we are losing. The Amish, yeah, they touch on it. But hey, this is what happened in the New Testament church, you guys. That the one that Jesus came and took, and you think he still hasn't done it yet? So what are we doing wrong? Your pastors, you should be asking them, how come we don't do this? They're going to give you a song and dance. And they're going to decide what plays and what doesn't. Because they can't make sense of it. Because they refuse to believe in what Jesus said he would do and the apostles said they would do, that he would do, and that is come back and take his church. And the list goes on and on. Now, there are many people today failing to understand the truth of his return are just missing this key component of the truth and who 
They rightly understand most things in the Bible, but they continually try to live by these New Testament apostolic rules established. And they shun and they ostracize. They hate sinners. They hate fags. They can't stand. Uh, they are rigid. And because they are going by what the New Testament seems to be saying. They've removed themselves from fellowship with sinners. They've cut the church off and held excommunications to keep it pure, but it's not pure in the New Testament sense. Failing to possess this truth I've just shared, which must be discovered through searching by people who want to see it, they fail in being free, and they fail in loving unconditionally in the spirit of that love. And therefore, the end result, folks, is they, because they are with their best intentions trying to apply that book to a church that was taken so many years ago, uh, they continue to try to operate, and the whole thing has been an utter fail. I want to see one church, any church on earth, small, big, medium, that can say we follow the New Testament directive. I want to see them, and I want to see how they follow it. And then I want to give them the litmus test of Christianity. Do they love? Because my estimation is they fail the test of love if they're even close to obeying everything that the apostles demanded of the church bride way back in the day. It's been a total, utter, fugly fail from the errors of the early church fathers, and they had a lot of them, to Constantine, to the Catholics, to Orthodoxy, to the Reformation, to the Restoration movements, to the modern approaches, the end results because they've all failed to embrace a single truth. Jesus said, I'm coming back to take my church. The apostles said he's coming back to take his church, and he did. If you can't accept that, I guarantee you, you're failing to love because you haven't been set free by the truth. Next week, McKenna Denson here with us. If you want to be here live, show up at the church studio. Go to campuschurch.tv. You can see our address. It's 137 West, 4640 South, Murray, Utah. Be here by 945. We tape from 10 on. And uh, if you don't want to be here live or can't be here live, tune in next week at Heart of the Matter, 8 o'clock for part one with McKenna. We'll see you then. Good job, group! <laughs>